0: Sober Gratitude's podcast is proud to come together and partner with Valor Fitness Clothing in our mutual mission to support and encourage the recovering community. Based in Los Angeles and inspired by real recovery, Valor Fitness lives up to its mission. With one item sold, Valor Fitness donates one item to a homeless shelter or transitional rehab facility. Because Valor Fitness Clothing supports Sober Gratitude's mission, everyone can receive a discount when shopping. Use the code GRATITUDE20 at checkout. Also, every guest on my podcast will be graciously given a gift certificate from Valor. We're stronger together when we come together. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 16 of Sober Gratitudes. My name is Sarah and I'm so glad you came to listen today. It's been some time since I brought you an episode, and I know I don't need to explain why. And so I want to speak to you directly and tell you how sorry I am if you have lost a loved one during this coronavirus. I also want to say thank you to those that have been working overtime on the front lines, risking your life to save ours. I have to be honest, the coronavirus and how it's impacted our world has deeply saddened me but I have been inspired to see how our world can do good things in the midst of crisis. Today's guest is my new friend, Karen, who I would not have met had the country not been told to stay at home. I hope this episode brings you hope and puts joy in your heart during this incredibly uncertain time in the world. Thank you again for joining me here at Sober Gratitudes and be well.
1: Hi, Karen. Hi, Sarah. How are you? good I'm good I'm thrilled that I could make this work yes you're connected <laughs> I am. oh gosh this is so cool
0: yeah <laughs> excuse me um Karen from California that's how I have you in my phone
1: <laughs> oh, okay
0: okay well that's good I like that yeah so Karen from California um I, I want to tell the listeners how we met or you can tell
1: Oh, go ahead, go ahead. You might tell it better than I do. Okay,
0: <laughs> okay well, it's really, <clears throat> excuse me, no coincidences.
1: Um, and it's so
0: amazing how things happen in the world of recovery, in the world of sobriety. But I did an interview um, with somebody else, um, I think in interview number six, I think. And the, this guy invited me, because of the COVID, the pandemic, invited me to a Zoom meeting over in over in the West Coast at 3 o'clock your time, 6 o'clock my time. And in this Zoom meeting, this Zoom session, um, I met Karen. And I instantly connected with her. I don't know if it's because we both have three boys, or I think it's more just because I just had this sense about you, that you have an amazing heart, and we have a lot of things in common. So so we've gotten to know each other because of this awful pandemic that's going on in the country. Um, one of the gratitudes, I guess you can say. Yes. Um, and, and I said, I've got to get her on my podcast because it's been a while. I haven't, I haven't had an episode in I think five or six weeks. I'd like the listeners to kind of hear more about where you came from.
1: Okay. Yes. Um, I, well, um, you know, I, I like to share when, um, I'm telling my story that, um, you know, I grew up in a, in a home where, um, alcohol was, it, it was a staple in my household. I mean, it was on the grocery list, you know, wine and beer and vodka was on the grocery list with eggs and milk and bread. And, you know, that was, um, something that, I don't know. I just I watched my my parents, they um both were daily drinkers and and my uh father in particular, I remember he would walk in the house every morning or I'm sorry, every evening after work and you know, go straight to the cabinet under the sink and pull out a bottle of vodka or a bottle of gin and he would literally drink straight out of it. Like he would take two or three guzzles of gin or vodka. When he'd come home from work at night, and you know, before he'd go shower and sit down at the dinner table with the family, and um, and my mom, you know, she too, she had her you know her jug of Carlo Rossi Chablis mm. that she poured into a tumbler, you know, every every afternoon evening when she was starting to prepare dinner, and so, and, and it just was such a part of my everyday world, um that it never occurred to me that I wouldn't drink alcohol. It was just a matter of when. And um, so it was like a way of so life.
0: It was, like a, it way was
1: life. a way of life. It was definitely part of our, my my family's lifestyle and all their friends. And, you know, it just never occurred to me that I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, and then, of course, I met a great guy who happened to grow up in the same type of household. My husband's family, you know, drank just like my family did. And, you know, it was kind of my husband's dad was European and, you know, alcohol was just a part of his daily world. And so when we got together, you know, again, it it just was no, there was no question that there was just alcohol in our home. We drank on a daily basis. It was, you know, it it's funny, I was thinking about this the other day, how, um, you know, it came to a place probably in my mid 40s. And it talks about it in, in our book of recovery, where alcohol ceased to be a luxury. And I think up until that point, it had been kind of a luxury, it was just kind of an add on in our household. And, you know, there were definitely moments in my in my life where I overdid it and my husband and I would have conversations about my drinking and, you know, how we could, you know, kind of fix this and what should we do? And, you know, and I would cry and, you know, um, I, I don't know. It just, it, there was definitely, and I knew inside of me that there was a problem, but like I said, there was so much other drinking going on around me that I sort of hid underneath that yeah, for years. Yeah. And so, like I said, in my mid forties, um, uh, my mother got, uh, ovarian cancer and, um, she died a couple of years into it. And at the onset of that, I started to drink a little bit heavier. It was kind of like my reward at the end of, you know, a long day, mm. I was, you know, raising three little boys, I had my career, I'm married, and now my mother has this illness, and I was an integral part of her treatment, and I, my parents were elderly, and, you know, I come home at night, and it was sort of like, I deserve this, I deserve, you know, the martini, and that it became two martinis, and then the two martinis became, you know, then the bottle of Chardonnay would come out, You know, after um, we sit down to dinner and, you know, it just started to tumble into this. That became more normal over the next few years. And so I started to really depend, you know, on it. And, um, and, you know, like I said, as it says in the book, you know, it ceased to be a luxury. You know, it became a necessity. Mm. It became... Um, Like, everything, it it started to become everything I needed um, to get through, you know, whatever was going on in my day, you know, and I started to wake up in the morning, um, you know, just with this terror of, you know, what I had to get through that day, because I was already considering how I was going to get to that drink at the end of, you know, whatever I had to get done, whatever my responsibilities were. And so um I, you know, that went on. And as my husband and I um usually will we'll talk about um we call it the parental holocaust. We ended up losing all of our parents within about a two and a half year period. Oh wow in that years you know my mother was first my father then my father-in-law then my mother-in-law and they all passed away and and it, it was it was really a tough time for our family uh, for our extended family it was just a really um you know just a, a rough time and my alcohol and my you know my drinking became um paramount mm-hmm. it was it was my the only coping skill that I ever was really taught and um, and I was always taught, you know, throughout my childhood, you know, whenever there was any kind of emotion that would come up in me, which was often, I was quite, I was kind of named a crybaby very early on in my life. Mm. And um, you know, and I was always told, <laughs> you know, oh gosh, it's making me emotional. You know, I was told things like, you know, do you want me to give you something to cry about? Uh-huh. And so I was taught very early to that that wasn't okay. Like uh-huh. having emotions was not something that I was allowed to have. And, yeah. and the alcohol helped with that. Yep. I mean, it just kind of took, it numbed me. Yep. and And I, at that time I felt like I needed that numbing and, So to get to, um, how I found recovery, um, I, um, in, I was, my parents adopted me and that was something that was, um, just kind of always kind of a, like something I knew, but not something that was really talked about in my life as I was growing up. And, um, But I was curious about, I was always curious about, I was always that kind of, you know, kind of restless, irritable, discontented child and was um, always wondering, like, if I weren't with my family that I was growing up with, where would I be instead? Uh. And so in my early 20s, I started to kind of do my own little research about, um, uh, Who my biological family was, where did I come from? Um, And actually, I used to go over to my parents' house when I was in my 20s and when they were retired and traveling. And, you know, I was responsible for looking after their house and watering plants and getting mail and that sort of thing. And I would always have, you know, a heyday in their liquor cabinet when I would do that. And I started ransacking the house looking for clues of what my um, background was and if they had any kind of information that would lead me to my biological family. And I ended up uh, confronting them when I was 28 years old. Uh, Andy and I were married and um, I had decided that it was important uh, before we started our family that I look into finding my biological family well come to find out that my parents um actually were in contact with my biological mother all along unbeknownst to me and um so it didn't take long for them to when I finally had the courage to confront them about it and talk to them about it they were able to locate my mother and within I think it was about a week or so um I was introduced to my biological mother and also learned that I was one of eight children. And so um, with that being said, I met five of my siblings and my mother in the same day. And my one biological brother who is a year older than I am, um, I was told before we met that, um, and the way that my parents presented it to me was, oh, you know, he has, he has problems. He's an alcoholic. Oh and, um, you know, he's, you know, which, like, I don't know, it kind of tainted this whole, like, visual of who this guy really is. And, but when we met, um, oh, my gosh, it was like, I met my other right, my oh. right arm. I, it was like meeting my, my twin. And, you know, he always describes it as he found his other lung when we met. And, you know, it's like, we both got this like new oxygen the day that we met. And so he was in fact sober and um, he had, I think four years of sobriety through, um, through AA and, so we quickly became very, very close. And um, it was like, I found this best friend that I had been looking for all my life. And, you know, and he knew that I drank and I knew he was sober and we just sort of built this foundation of a relationship over the next, you know, 20 years. Um, And I watched him and I looked at his life and I, you know, I watched the way he did things. And I, I just was so in awe of how he conducted his life sober. And it just didn't make any sense to me. It seemed like, you know, oh, my gosh, it has to be boring. It has to be, you know, oh, my gosh, his life must just be so just, you know, um, colorless. And, you know, but as I watched him, And I watched him conduct his life and he had a lot going on. Um, He was, he had gone through a divorce in that time. Um, He had gotten custody of his children. Um, I just watched him really quote unquote man up and walk through all these things in life without drinking that were amazing to me. So I knew that sobriety was something that was, available to me. But I just, again, didn't think I was that bad. So um, leading up to um, when things really started to get bad for me, um, I knew. I knew where, I knew the resource to go to. And at that point in time, um, you know, my drinking had had gotten to the point where, um, like I had said earlier, just you know, every day it was waking up. It was, you know, just that that fear, terror, remorse, just feeling disgusted with myself of, you know, what I didn't remember from the night before, conversations I had with my children that um, I had no recollection of, commitments I had made that I didn't remember. And, you know, it just was really starting to snowball into this, um, this life where I really believed in my soul that, um, my husband, my boys, my family was better Mm -hmm. off without me. That was where it took me. And, um, I recall the weekend before I, um, had decided, you know, that, I had to I had to do this. I had to give sobriety a shot because I had never really, you know, gone to any form of any kind of recovery. I'd never tried to get sober other than on my own. You know, it was that remorseful, I can't do this anymore and I might be sober for like a week or so or a few days and then I just couldn't do it. I just could not do it on my own. And I, I even you know, relentlessly tried, you know, oh, I'm only going to have a couple of drinks, you know, where it talks about, you know, um, controlling and enjoying, Mm -hmm. you know, I tried that for for many years of, you know, just like, I can do this, I can do this, I can only have a couple of drinks. And then once that first drink was in me, it was it was on and I, I had no control over it anymore. And so, um, I, um, had gotten to this point, And like I said, that last weekend where, you know, things were really starting in my opinion, and, you know, you hear people say they had a high bottom or a low bottom. I still consider myself to have a pretty high bottom. You know, I was a high bottom drunk at the end, but the one thing that was so significant was, um, The weekend before uh, my sobriety date, I had driven my son home from a barbecue on a Sunday afternoon, and I came home and um, continued to drink through the rest of the afternoon and not even realizing I was in a complete blackout. I didn't even know that I was. And um, that's where alcohol just can become that. It's just so subtle. We don't even know it's happening to us when you know, when it is, and I had walked out into my hallway a couple hours after I had picked him up and he came out of his bedroom and con- kind of confronted me in the hallway. And I just, I had no idea that I had even gone to pick him up. I asked him, you know, when he had gotten home wow. and, you know, that was, that was pretty significant. And, you know, and my poor husband, um, for years, you know, didn't know the wife he was coming home to, you know, on, in those last couple of years. And, um, he didn't know if dinner was going to be on the table, if I was going to be asleep on the couch, if I was going to be, you know, um, just, he, he had no clue what he was coming home to. And, um, that final, uh, Monday he had come home. And again, once again, I couldn't put you know, two sentences together. And, you know, that was just, it was it for him. I think it was looking back on it and how he describes it. Now he had realized that I, my drinking had come to a point where if I was not in agreement of actually getting sober or making some kind of attempt to get sober, that he was going to have to make a decision in terms of, you know, didn't know if he was going to have to remove me from the home uh remove the kids from the home you know he just knew that he was going to have to make a decision that um it just scared the hell out of him and <clears throat> excuse me and so we got into this altercation about it and um i knew i don't know i i call it the grace of god i call it a divine intervention That evening, because there was something about that conversation that, um, you know, just that series of events that had taken place where it made me willing. And I woke up the next morning and um, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, if I climbed out of bed that morning, even to do the smallest thing, even to just brush my teeth or take a shower, it would start that ball rolling of, of normalcy. And I would drink that day. And so by the grace of God, I was paralyzed and couldn't move and just stayed in my bed that day. And, um, my husband bless his heart. He of course didn't know what to do with me and kept coming in and checking on me and asking me, you know, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? Do you want to get up? And I, I remember hearing at some point, probably from my brother that, um, you know, I, I was all out of ideas. Every decision I had ever made in my life up to that point got me to that paralysis in that bed that day. And I, I just, I gave up, I surrendered and I just knew that if I, like I said, if I made any decisions on my own that day, it was going to lead me to a drink because that's all I knew how to decide. And so by the grace of God, I stayed there. And I recall my husband calling a friend of ours, um, who was, he was a friend from a small group at church that we were in. And he was very um, open and transparent about his recovery. And he asked me that afternoon, like I said, it was probably about three o'clock in the afternoon that day. That's how long I stayed paralyzed in that bed. And he asked if Pete could come over and talk to me. And I agreed. And I um, listened to what he had to say. He was over at our house within 30 minutes. He was sitting at my bedside. And it was that first moment of one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. And I felt like I I could tell him anything. You know, it was that first moment of being transparent for the first time about what I was really up to and how I was really conducting my life and behaving. And it that was a miracle that day. And he, um, I remember he asked me, if I was a morning person and which of course I wasn't. And um, you know, I would get up and throw a baseball cap on and sweats on and get my kids to school. But that was about as morning as I was. And I just remember in that moment saying to him, I think I could be. Hmm. And sorry. And I I still look back on that that moment of my first uh, attempt at willingness. Mm -hmm. I was willing to do anything at that point for my life to Mm -hmm. be different. And um, as I was sharing with you the other day, um, this moment was so significant to me because um, uh, he told me that he would be by my house the next morning and that he was going to pick me up and take me to a meeting. So I had to be ready at six 30 in the morning. And, um, I've always said that, um, I've always identified with Cinderella. She's always been my favorite (laughs) princess. And, um, Pete showed up that next morning at, my door and I remember it was foggy and he had on a trench coat and he walked me out to his car and I'll never forget this he opened his passenger door and stepped away from it and he said to me welcome to your chariot of miracles (laughs) wow I felt connected to you also immediately I think you know as you said there's no coincidences Yeah, you know so thank you. Oh. And uh
0: well, how are you doing
1: through this this pandemic? You know, I'm 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 doing okay, you know. Um one of the things that um my sponsor always uh ingrained in me from the very beginning was to kind of establish like uh, a routine, a structure you know, it started very early in my sobriety um, of just, you know, getting up and and doing the next right thing, you know, how we're taught. Um, And I I kind of followed that, even as er in the very early days, just navigating through what, you know, this unknown that we're, we're dealing with. Um, So I would just, you know, get up and do the normal thing. Our meetings went pretty much to zoom pretty quickly out here in California. And because um, we were watching what was going on on the East coast and we trying to, you know, avoid uh, what was happening there. And, you know, so we went straight into zoom and I just started kind of doing that and just establishing yeah. my daily routine of recovery that I know in my regular normal life even though so much of it was, you know, removed, and I was, you know, sent home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying really hard to just keep that up and keep it going. But um, it, you know, some days are better than others. Mm-hmm. You know, not every day is, you know, all sunshine and rainbows and, and, you know, structure and and things get thrown off. And, um You know, so I'm just kind of doing it a day at a time, like we're taught. So, um, and, you know, like we kind of talked before, um, I don't know if you want me to just kind of jump into that. Sure. Um, you know, um, for the most part, you know, this, there have been a lot of gifts that this situation has, has lended me. Um, you know, I, I work, Full time, I work a you know forty to fifty hour week normally. Um, I'm a hairstylist here in California, and um, I've been doing this for you know thirty five plus years. And I love my job. I love my career. um, And it's literally been pulled out from underneath me. And we were sent home March twentieth, and we were told, you know, it's only going to be a couple weeks, and you know, just go home and you know let's let's do this stay at home uh, order and it seems like every time we get to that place where you know we've done what we've been told it gets extended and this last weekend I was um, found out that uh, it's going to be extended yet again and so it looks like I'm probably going to be out of work for probably close to eight weeks, which is, you know, just crazy. And I started to really feel weird about it over the weekend and really start to feel unsettled and uneasy and and angry. And um, I was angry. I was really mad because, you know, and especially because I'm starting to get pressure from the outside world. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm starting to get messaged, you know, my clients want you know, want me to do their hair and they want me to do it, you know, in my garage and they want me to do it on my driveway. And, you know, it's like, you know, I, and I'm supposed to listen to the authorities and mm-hmm. um, it, it just, I, I it doesn't sit right with me. First of all, because I've been taught from very early on in my sobriety that, you know, first of all, honesty, openness, and willingness, you know, are the keys to that unlock the door of this new life that I have. And I've been, you know, shown it because, you know, I'm coming up on nine years of sobriety this June, God willing. And, um, and it's, it's just such a gift that I, I, I can't even imagine going back to the other life that I had, And the, idea of doing something in a dishonest fashion, it it just freaks me out, you know, and I'm I'm struggling with that. And you know, and I look at my family who depends on me financially. And I have, you know, clients who are, you know, coming, even people who don't come to me are calling me and asking me if I can do their hair in my garage. And You know, so it's just such a it's I started feeling really icky Mm. and having those feelings that, you know, am I supposed to what am I supposed to do here? Yeah. And so that's kind of where I am sitting with that right at this moment. Just, you know. Should I shouldn't I? I I don't want to do something that's dishonest and because I know where that leaves me. I know where that takes me. And I've worked way too hard and this program has given me such a freedom and a, a, you know, just a life that I never thought I could ever have because I spent so many years hiding and lying and, you know, all that dishonest behavior that I, have you know, worked through that I, I just don't want to go back there again. And it's weird that this pandemic has sort of brought that to me in a weird way Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know so that's kind of where I'm sitting with it right now um no I appreciate that
0: I really appreciate your honesty Karen and and that's the thing and and sobriety uh, sobriety doesn't mean that we become perfect people it means that Mm -hmm. um that we we learn tools about how to cope with life and cope with uncertain uncertainties in life and this is a huge huge uncertainty (laughs) that we're dealing with right now. And in a way I would say, like, I know for myself, I feel like, you know, cause I have almost eight years in the per, per, in the program of recovery that I use. And I feel like the, 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 these years have like, I'm so grateful. I had those years to work up to today's oh, current.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: And because um, otherwise I don't know, where I'd be at. But I, I really want to get back to um you you touched on your life before, your life of dishonesty before, your life before um recovery, your your life in active addiction. Um mm-hmm. and, and I really love to touch on the differences that how we transform from how we are in active addiction and then how how we transform into the the people we become in recovery, in sobriety.
1: I stepped in and um, went to my first uh, meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, which has has now become um, the program of recovery that I um, have have used and has uh, completely changed my life. And um, so... I was actually in that time frame of those first few days of my, um, my recovery, um, which I might add, um, when Pete took me to that first meeting, um, I walked in and, and there was just such, there was an energy, there was, uh, there was laughter, there was, um, there was a, a, a connectiveness that these people had that I longed for that I, I immediately felt attached to. It was like I, it's like I had been watching my brother through all those years, through like this glass wall that I couldn't break through. And finally, it was like that day walking through it, I had finally walked through, broken through that, that wall of um, just, you know, that, that life that he had, that, I felt the joy that he had for the first time. And he was sort of my guide in those first few days of AA. Um, You know, I would talk to him every day and his advice to me about, you know, attending a meeting every day, no matter what, and listening to the women share um, and just really listening to, uh, you know, his advice was I had to find a sponsor and that um, I needed to uh, listen to the women and listen for, you know, what I wanted, listen to the shares and find someone who had what I wanted. And um, in terms of um, the way they were living their life, not necessarily how pretty they were or not necessarily, you know, how they were dressed. And, you know, what it was more of, you know, What were the qualities of their sobriety? And he told me, he goes, don't even talk to someone who doesn't have five years (laughs) (laughs) was his advice to me. And, you know, and I, I just was so broken down at that point, Sarah, that I just, I was willing to listen to whatever direction was given to me at that time. And thankfully, by the grace of God, I was given just such, such solid, solid, direction from the very beginning and I was willing to take it and I really feel that 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 gift of desperation you know that you hear people talk about in recovery is was so real for me and I'm so grateful for it. that's one of the biggest gratitudes in early sobriety that I have was just the the gift of the desperation that I had and I know I needed to get to that level of desperation to even be willing to, to take any kind of direction.
0: Did you find there was a time where you realized that, that you, that, that, wait a minute for you, it was a different experience than more than just like something that you have with dinner or, you know, as a a cocktail hour or whatever, like when did it start to become like, was there a shift for you, or was it gradual, or was there like a a, a day or a, or a situation that occurred where you realized, wait a minute, <laughs> this is something a little bit different, more different, like different than just a staple in the house.
1: Well, I I, ha- I have to say, I for me, I I didn't from the first time I drank, which um, and I share this a lot. My first experience with alcohol. Um, Even though it was such a staple in my home, um, I didn't actually start drinking until my first drink was the night I graduated from high school. Somebody handed me this glass of cold duck and I drank it. And then I think I had another one. And, you know, I don't know how many I might've had three that in that period, that party period. And I just remember that feeling you know that feeling um, just for the first time you know how I talked earlier about that you know that irritable restless discontented child that I was I felt so comfortable with who I was as they say comfortable in my own skin for the first time in my entire life and I just remember thinking I'm going to do this every day Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Because it was such a, like I said, it was such a, um, you know, a normal occurrence in my household that everybody else in my household drank every day. Mm -hmm. Now I know why. And so that continued. But there were a couple of times and there was one particular time and I was probably about maybe about 23 years old. And up until that point, I remember having a real self-righteous kind of judgmental attitude about people who drank too much. And people who said they didn't remember what happened the night before, I was so self-righteous about that. And I had gone to a party and had drank myself, I drank myself into like oblivion for the first time. And I remember waking up the next day and not only was I hung over beyond anything I had ever experienced before, but I had, I had to like miss I was um, working as a a server in a restaurant at the time. And I actually had to miss work for the first time. And I just remember thinking in that moment, like, oh my God, like I, this is not a, I, I don't drink like other people do. Like it occurred to me in that moment that I don't do this. Like I'm, Judging myself finally for the first time, like that self-righteous attitude of mine was sort of, you know, put aside because I had become the thing hmm. that I was judging, and and then um, there was another point several years later. I was probably about twenty-nine years old, and I was married, and um, at that point, drinking heavily and using other substances and all of that and I also it was any time that it affected my daily coming and going if it affected me going to work or it affected me uh you know just conducting my life in a normal way that would always make me stop and take notice and you know and those moments were few and far between, but they were always Mm. pretty dramatic. And, you know, and I would stop, Mm -hmm. you know, for a while. That's, those were the times, you know, where I thought, "Uh uh-oh, you know, this, like, I'm not, I'm not doing this normally. And, you know, or I, and then over the next several days, I would kind of start justifying things and talking myself into, you know, and I was notorious for sort of, Talking about partying and drinking, and get other people to not necessarily co sign me, but I would listen to their stories about their behavior and, you know, oh, yeah, I did that last summer, or oh, yeah, I couldn't remember what I did. So I would always gather other people's information and justify mm-hmm. my own in my head. Mm-hmm. If that oh, makes, yeah. If that makes yeah. sense at all. Yeah, that, I was really notorious for that, you know, and I would never divulge how I felt about what I was doing. I would just sort of, like I said, go out and gather information from other people to make what I was doing yeah. okay in my own head. I did that.
0: Yeah,
1: I did and, that too. Yeah. yeah, we we need to find people
0: who are worse than we are to, to kind of justify our, um, our um, total active behaviors so yeah okay great well exactly. thank you for yeah I um I thought that might be important for for the listeners to to hear I know I know that's um you know we all kind of have that shift of of you know no I guess quote-unquote normal drinking but then we start to realize wait a minute I'm, I'm doing a little bit differently than other people I'm feeling a little bit differently about it than other people and then and and, and we mm-hmm. might hide it and not share it with people and then um because there's that shame, you know, that I know for me, I felt sh- a little shamed yeah. or very ashamed that I, that I loved it so much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yes, we have a little bit of time left that I think is, is good for a, a podcast episode. But I, I what I want to talk about now is um, what's going on today and in with this COVID virus and, and we did talk about before mm-hmm. um, this recording We talked about what you and I have both been kind of experiencing recently and like our emotions and our feelings about everything that's going on and, and how our the program of recovery that we use is working for us in our daily lives today. So, so, and the one thing we addressed was being honest about some negative feelings that are coming up for us. So I just I guess I wanted to just touch on that a bit and um maybe we can we can share about our experiences right now and how how our program of recovery is is working for us in coping with the covid.
1: Oh great. I okay. would love to. Love to. Um you know um uh, as I as I had said earlier, you know, my 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 work is my passion. And, um, I've, you know, been doing it for, for decades and, you know, just being suddenly, you know, very abruptly, uh, sent home. And, um, I, you know, the first, the first few weeks of it were really tough. I kind of fought it, um, you know, I thought about, you know, ways of getting around it. And, you know, it w- really wasn't going to be that bad. Like I said, initially, we were just told it was only going to be a couple weeks. And as time has progressed, um, you know, I mean, at this point, it's been um, it's it's been over a month that, you know, I've been in lockdown here. And, um, you know, a lot of feelings have come up of um you know, just, uh, anger. Um, I've been very emotional. Um, I've been concerned about, um, you know, what's happening with my children. Um, I have one, I have a son who works in the healthcare field. He works at a hospital here in Southern California. Um, I can't do anything about, I can't even see him. And that's been another issue that I've had to deal with is, you know, I have two sons who don't live at home. I have one who is home from college and is living with us. And, um, you know, I, I I can't see my family. I can't see my other two boys. You know, we can FaceTime, we can talk. And I feel very, um, uh, I'm, I've been pretty upset about that. And, um, you know, and then I've got the one son who is home with us and who's doing classes online. And I've, you know, was concerned about his, um, psyche and how he, his emotional balance of how he's dealing with it. And I'm, you know, it's like, once you're a mother, you're always a mother. There's, you know, nothing that, um, you know, there's no, like, you don't clock out, (laughs) um, (laughs) from motherhood. And, um, but because I have this structure, this, this, routine, the structure in place, these tools that I have been able to, you know, I check in with my sponsor, I'm, you know, I have a a resource, these, you know, beautiful women that I uh, am able to be transparent with, and, you know, and, and the meetings that I've been going to on Zoom, and I've been able to be transparent and voice my frustrations and voice mm-hmm. my anger and mm-hmm. voice my fear a lot of it's fear yeah. and you know we were never you know told as we came into recovery we weren't told we weren't going to have fear you know we were going to be given tools uh through working our program how to mm-hmm. uh, manage the fear and uh, and I mean, my relationship with, you know, as they say in my program, my higher power, who I call God, um, has has been key in all of this. I mean, my my prayer life, my journaling, my um, all of like I said, all of those tools, and that connection with God that I, um, you know, I I grew up believing in God I grew up always believing that there was something beyond me there was a creator but through my recovery program I was given um a relationship with this God I was given a connection um but I have to be the one that Mm -hmm. opens that door I mean, my sponsor always tells me, she says, Karen, God is a gentleman. He is not going to go where he's not invited. Mm -hmm. And, and I love that. I love that. And, you know, that means I have, I have to open that door. I have to be the one willing to invite that presence into my life. And that presence is going to help me get through, you know, get through all of this. And I, you know, I have had to learn to trust. And like you were saying earlier, I mean, I'm so thankful. Um, and I give so much, um, I'm just so in awe of the people that I am seeing that are trying to get into recovery now, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing to me because I feel so blessed that I've had time to establish these, uh, you know, processes and, uh, these relationships that I have in place to get through this. I love what
0: you were saying, Karen, about um, how your relationship with your higher power helps you to manage the fear um, that we get, manage any emotions, to cope with any emotions that come up for us in any situation. I know that for me, um, I rely on, on the program of recovery that I'm in because I get to be on these zoom meetings. Now I get to be honest about any negative feelings I have and my negative feelings can get pretty intense, you know, Mm -hmm. like I can get real irritable, Mm -hmm. but that's usually because I'm, um, angry or, um, sad or frustrated. And, um, and I don't know what, and I've learned what's so wonderful about being in recovery is that I've, I don't have, I I don't need to drink over these feelings anymore. Um, I don't need to drink in celebration of uh, things anymore, yeah. which is wonderful. I get to, I, the, it doesn't matter the good or the bad feelings. I don't need to drink over good and bad stuff anymore. Um, Cause I don't feel like, like I used to think it would come hand in hand, like celebration. Oh, drink, you know, like sadness. Oh, drink. Um, and when, and now Absolutely. I can, okay, I'm feeling irritated. And, and I've gone, I used to judge myself for feeling that way. Cause I thought, Oh, I'm supposed to be happy because I'm, I'm recovered or recovery. Like, but no, like I'm still human. I'm still imperfect and I'm still learning um, how to be um, a human being, or, you know, living in this world of uncertainty and, um, with things that happen on every, like today, you know, with, with my son walking in while I'm doing this recording, it it just happens. and And so I get to be honest and transparent, like you talked about earlier, Karen, about my feelings. And I don't have to judge my feelings anymore. I can hold space for those feelings. I can hold space for, I don't have to figure out what, even why I might, might not even understand why I'm feel, feeling negatively um, or having a negative emotion. I can just let it sit. I've learned how to just let it sit with me and let them out of my, let those thoughts come out of my mouth to another alcohol recovering alcoholic. And then once mm-hmm. I get it out of my mouth, it no longer has power over me.
1: Oh, that's so true.
0: And, and when it when that, when I let that go and it's like, I'm giving it away. I'm giving that away for someone else to take care of whoever that might be, you know, whoever your higher power is, you know, the universe, the planets, you know, like um, Buddha, um, whoever, God, whoever. Yes. Um, If it's somebody that, that you find as being, you know, source, you know, like something that's, that's beyond your understanding, if you will. And uh, that I, I am so grateful that I, I know that even when I'm experiencing, like yesterday, I was really, really irritable. I was at the tail end of like a three-day being irritable phase. And I kept thinking, I know this will end. I know this will end, and I just need to be honest about it. And once I was honest, I started to feel better. And so I, I get to not drink about it anymore. And that's such a, I am so grateful. Like that is one of my biggest gratitudes in, in recovery is I don't, I don't have to drink over anything anymore. I get to really feel things and then experience getting through them. And then I get to show that to my kids, you know, like, right. Like, oh yeah. To now, right. Yeah. Our, that's our, huge. Our sons get to see us coping with things in a real way and not avoiding them. Or pushing them down.
1: Right, right. And, you know, like I had said earlier, that example that was set for me, you know, for so many years that, um, you know, my brother showed me that, you know, like you said, now I have the ability to be that example to, you know, not only my own children, but just even I find with, you know, other You know, our extended family, even, you know, people in just in my daily life that, you know, I have been transparent enough about my recovery that, you know, I, it it goes beyond, you know, it's such a ripple, you know, quote, one of my, one of my buddies, you know, in recovery, who always says, you know, bad things don't always come to Mm. hurt us. And I, I have found that to be true. I mean, just, you know, you and I connecting and, you know, sharing our stories together. And, you know, there would have, you know, there would have never been another opportunity for us to have even met, you know, had this not happened. And so I just keep, you know, and that's my prayer every day is how I can be, how I can be useful, how I can be um, a help to someone else, you know, whatever, like I said, I, you know,
0: it's amazing. And I, I feel the same way.
1: I prayed before we did this and, you know, just asked for direction and how I can be helpful, how I can be useful. And, you know, and that just, even that thinking in my head is such a gratitude because that's not the way i I thought that was not my thought process before, you know, just the, you know, the change in my thinking has been so miraculous that I I'm yeah. just so grateful to have this gift of a different way, you know, to think and to react to life. Oh, well,
0: this has been wonderful. Karen, thank you so much for, for the time again, like I said, and, and um thank you yeah
1: yeah, oh my gosh what an honor and
0: um and good luck with you know being quarantined and I hope everything works out for you I'm sure it will because everyone needs to get a haircut everyone needs to
1: (laughs) it's been such a pleasure Sarah it's been a pleasure to, to meet you and to get to know you and um know that you know that my little world of recovery here in Southern California, you know, it's, it's that I can go anywhere. And, you know, our book talks about that. It's like I can go anywhere in the world and be a free woman today and find, find my, you know, find my people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just, I'm so oh, grateful for I that.
0: But This is a great way to end the episode and, um, Thank you. So you have a great rest of the day and, and Thanks, um, you too. We'll talk again soon. All right. All
1: right. Okay. I hope so. I can't wait. All right. bye. Thanks, Sarah. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes, a podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it.